If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We are wrapping up our Life Together series talking about how to exercise private judgment. And that may be something that maybe it's foreign to you, you've never heard of that. We're going to talk about its importance this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, and then we'll swing over just a few pages to 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word together. 1 Corinthians 2.15 But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says, but examine all things, hold fast to that which is good. Let's pray. Our Father and God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today, through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. When I had originally planned out this series, I did not include this topic, this uh, theological topic, uh, but it dawned on me, tomorrow is Reformation Day. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the All Saints Church door in Wittenberg, the electorate of Saxony, what we call Germany. Luther was frustrated with the sale of indulgences, believing instead that God alone forgives sins, and not the Pope, and certainly not the Romanist Church. The 95 grievances were quickly translated and spread around Germany and the rest of Europe in, in just a few short weeks, and it caused, of course, quite a stir. Uh, in this case, the cake had been baked. There was no turning back now. When the reformers, who, by the way, didn't end up reforming the church, but ended up leaving the apostate church of Rome, when they looked at the Word of God, when they looked to the Word of God, they, there were three main contentions, we can boil it down to, three main contentions between them and Rome. First, of course, was the proficiency and the priority, the sufficiency and supremacy of, of Scripture, the priority and the necessity of, of Scripture, often known as uh, sola scriptura, Scripture alone, and that, of course, being the infallible rule of faith. And that is, of course, opposed to the priority, uh, sufficiency, and supremacy of the Pope and the Church. The second point of contention was justification by faith alone, and not by works, especially the works that the Roman Church required. And then third, probably, uh, as far as I can tell, the third main contention was the right and duty of private judgment. Most people think of justification by faith as being sort of that central thing. And indeed, it was a, a massively important topic. But don't forget about the right and duty of private judgment, as opposed to this complete and unyielding submission to the church's judgments. Even if the church's judgments are incorrect, you still must submit to them. Now, this is not to suggest that those were the only things they recovered, nor are those the only things with which they concerned themselves. The doctrines of grace uh, the priesthood of all believers, the importance of vocation for all believers, uh, the Bible translated and, and written in the, in the native tongue, in the native language. You think of the five solas, solas Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, 
sola gratia, grace alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and soli deo, gloria, to the glory of God alone, and so on. All of these things, all of these were elements that had essentially been recaptured by the Reformation movement. As it stands today, however, the third one that I listed, that right and duty of private judgment, is one of the least known and is one of the I think the least taught, one of the things that's least taught in churches today. And it may just be, however, the most important thing, at least in some sense. What I mean is, in order to submit oneself to the Roman church's alleged infallibility, one would need to judge that to be correct. So it's inescapable. Uh, The Roman church demanded complete fidelity to their doctrinal and, and conviction, their doctrinal convictions and teachings. And uh, in order to even submit to that, you would have to judge for yourself. This must be correct. So you can't get away from private judgment. It's inescapable. So you see the irony there. Something that the Reformers taught and something they fought for was a healthy balance between the individual and the collective. The individual and the collective. And only achieved in the Christian world and life view, mind you, because the Trinitarian Godhead is equal and ultimate when it comes to the one and the many. God is one. God is three persons. Uh, Unity, diversity within the Godhead. Now, on the one hand, if you think of it this way, Christians have been bought by the blood of Christ and as a consequence have been brought into a collective, the, the church of God, the ecclesia. Now, on the other hand, unlike humanism's attempts at collectivism, this particular covenantal establishment does not obliterate the individual. So, again, you've been purchased by Christ. The gospel is good news. He died for you. Your sins are atoned for. He was raised for your justification, Paul spells out in Romans. So you have what you need in Christ. The Holy Spirit is, is with you. He's regenerated your heart. He is penetrating your very being, the center of who you are. You have what you need, but that doesn't obliterate who you are. You're brought into the church, the people of God, that transcends space and time. You're in the people of God, this covenant reality, and you're still an individual, though. It doesn't cease. You don't cease being an individual. You don't come to Christ by faith, uh, drawn by the Spirit, and so on, only to enter into the bride of Christ with your mouth closed and your brain turned off. You, as an individual, still have responsibilities as an individual. You are called to repent and believe. You, and that never stops, by the way, but you are called to grow in wisdom and sanctification. You are going to be judged by Christ as an individual. Only a biblically consistent conceptualization balances the one and the many, the individual in relationship to the collective. Now, keeping this in mind, I think, helps us sort out the issues of conscience, self-rule, self-mastery, self-control, and, of course, biblical interpretation. That is, the Reformers saw from Scripture itself a freedom of conscience on certain things and the right of each individual to go to the Bible freely and unencumbered by collectivists and control in order to diligently find whether something, anything, was consistent with Scripture or not. You and your Bible, 
read through the eyes of faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, matters. It matters. So you can go there. There's a freedom of conscience. Some of you, you, you like the color of the, your car. You picked that color. It's, it suits you. you. Your fancy is a white car or a black car, a red car. And you wouldn't dare criticize someone saying, I can't believe you drive a color of a car different than me. My conscience is held captive to this black colored car. You have red. You're ridiculous. You know, no one would say that. But there's freedom of conscience on a billion things that are in this world that aren't necessarily spelled out in Scripture, like you have to get this color of car. So there's a freedom of conscience and there's something at play there. And you have that right to go to the Scriptures to find conviction there and hold to it. Now, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the church, the collective, has the infallibility of interpretation. Not necessarily the Bible, but the, the mother church has the infallibility of interpretation. But the Reformers, however, they steadfastly maintained that Scripture alone possesses infallibility, and the Christian individual has a right and a duty to judge for himself by the Word of God whether this thing is truth or not. That's powerful. That changed Western, Western civilization. It changed all of Europe. Now, on this point, the Council of Trent, which... Uh, that's the definitive Roman Catholic position. I want you to hear what they say, just because you know, I'm not making this up. The Council of Trent says this, In order to restrain petulant minds, already condescending. It's like you said four words and you're already dissing me. Wonderful. The Council further decrees that in matters of faith and morals, and whatever relates to the maintenance of Christian doctrine, no one confiding in his own judgment shall dare to rest the sacred scriptures to his own sense of them. <laughs> Contrary to that which hath been held and, is, and still is held by Holy Mother Church, whose right it is to judge of the true meaning and interpretation of sacred writ. Or contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even though such interpretation should never be published. If any disobey, this is how serious they were, if any disobey, let them be denounced by the ordinaries and punished according to law. If you dare to take Scripture into your own conscience and dare to judge something to be true, and especially dare to judge something to be true against Roman Catholic Church, you're to be punished by law. They took it seriously. And this came years after the Reformation had already set foot in Western civilization. In other words, you as an individual do not have the right to read the Bible and conclude something different than the collective church. And if you do so, punishment. And this is, for lack of better words, uh, paganism, control, authoritarianism, collectivism, <laughs> plain and simple. But the Bible teaches that we do possess both a right and a responsibility to exercise private judgment. So to the teaching, the testimony, we go. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. I want to look at verse 14 and 15 together, and we're going to give you some context as well. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by 
no one. Some of your translations say judge. The ESV chose that. The word is anacrino, and judge tends to have somewhat of an ambiguous uh, understanding. So examine is really the heart of that judgment. No, he who is spiritual, the, the, the spiritual man, you think of what, what is a spiritual man? You lock yourself in the closet eight hours a day and, and pray. We usually think in those terms, but here Paul says, a spiritual man examines all things. He judges all things. He is examined by no one. Now, at the end of chapter 1, Paul compares and he contrasts the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. That's how he starts off his letter. The cross, which is folly to the world, is actually, lo and behold, the wisdom of God. It is Christ crucified who is the wisdom of God incarnate. Uh, He says God's wisdom is, is wiser than man's wisdom. God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. His weakness is stronger than the strength of men. And Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 27, that God chose the foolishness of the world to shame the wise. And this was done to essentially run roughshod over the folly of so-called human wisdom. And that human wisdom attempts to exist apart from Christ. Paul says that's not possible. The folly of the cross is wiser than than the wisdom of men. It, the, the, the weakness of what we see in the cross of Christ, boy, that is, that is strength. That is power. And in chapter 2, Paul connects wisdom with the mystery of God, this unfolding of his redemptive purposes in history. None of the rulers of the world, they, they, they didn't understand. They, none of them understood what was happening when Christ came on the scene. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just putting this criminal to death. They had no idea. If they knew, they wouldn't have done it. The revelation of this mystery, this unfolding of glory, came about due to the Spirit who searches all things, he says in verse 10. You think of what does the Holy Spirit do? He... He searches all things. In connecting the depths of God, known only by the Spirit, to us, Paul makes sure to note that we have not received the Spirit of the world. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Holy Spirit from God. And this is where our two verses come into play here in verses 14 and 15. The Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit is the line in the sand when it comes to the intersection of the kingdom of God and the world. The Holy Spirit is the line in the sand. In verse 14, he uses this negative form to explain why the wisdom of God is rejected by the natural man. This became fully palpable this week at the the college. Why is the wisdom of God rejected by the natural man? It's rejected, he says here in verse 14, because these things are foolishness. It's utter absurdity. This bloody Savior who died for your sin, that's insane. It's foolishness. And he cannot understand them. Why can't he understand them? Because they are spiritually examined. God's Spirit is the exegete of God's wisdom. God's Spirit takes the infinite wisdom of God and puts it in you. It puts, he, he, he stuffs it in there. So, you don't, in other words, you don't have wisdom if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, the natural or the unspiritual man just doesn't get it on, its own, on his own volition, no matter how smart he may be. 
We talked to some really smart folks Thursday, just brilliant freshmen studying anthropology. Note the sarcasm. And you talk about things like justice and ethics and righteousness, and, and you talk about worldview, and you talk about Christ and his kingdom, and it's just, they would much rather hang on to evolution, would much rather believe that we came from apes. Someone descended you know, from somebody who climbed out of the pond, you know, it's, 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 it's sad, it's maddening too when they get relentless, but you just think they, they can't get that wisdom on their own volition. They have to have the work of the Spirit. Man's nature cannot transcend itself. With sinners, there's, there's always antipathy towards the truth, always. Something else must occur in the hearts of sinners if they are going to apprehend spiritual truth. And we know what that is, the work of the Spirit in changing people's hearts. Now in the next verse, that's our focus here, verse 15, Paul describes what it means to be a spiritual person. The spiritual man, enlivened by the Holy Spirit, brought out of misery and darkness, is someone who examines all things. Again, examine means to judge. It's, it's this exercise of discernment. And once discerned, the man of God passes some form of judgment on it. So you, you discern whether this thing is true or not. Does it align with Scripture? And then you pass judgment on it because you have to discern what it is. And able to discern good and evil, uh, Hebrews 5.14 explains that's someone who is mature. If, if you want to be a mature person, a spiritual man, you, you able to discern good and evil, growing on from the milk to the meat, so the analogy goes. If that's going to happen, then you need to be marked by sound judgment and shrewd discernment. You're not carried away by everything, every wind of doctrine in Paul's language in Ephesians. You're not carried away by anything like that. You are able to discern. You're able to examine. You're able to judge, to evaluate, maybe another way to, to nuance it in the English language anyway. But this man or woman cannot be judged or examined by anyone. That is, no natural man is able to judge divine truth, and thus he is unable to, to, to judge the spiritual man. They try to pass judgment all day on you when you're standing for righteousness at a place like a college campus. But you, you're worshiping a false god. You have no capabilities here in judging what is wise or what is true. And you're in college studying all of this stuff. Gender studies, you know, there's two, study over, right? But that's what, that's what we've become. We've become foolish. Our minds are debased. The natural man cannot understand it, cannot judge it. And none of you who are spirit-filled and spiritual in this sense can be judged by any natural man, no matter what they say. Now notice that this ability is given to all Christians, not um, church officers, not the Pope, not a special elite Christian, you know, uh, none of that. All Christians have this. The same Holy Spirit that, that anointed Christ anoints you. The same Holy Spirit that brought Christ out of the grave is the same Holy Spirit who anoints and covers you. The Spirit is for all the elect of God. And Paul sees a connection between the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit who aids us in knowing that this wisdom. He also sees a connection between the Spirit of God and the new creation man's ability to positively align himself with God's revelation. 
Uh, Charles Hodge, he wrote this, The right of private judgment in matters of religion is inseparable from the indwelling of the Spirit. Those who can see have the right to see. It is the office of the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth, to open our eyes, to discern it in its true nature, and to feel its power. The point here is this. If a man claims to be spiritual but disobeys the Spirit where he leads, contradicts where the Spirit teaches or or, or does not adhere to the Spirit's discerning power, if that's not happening, he's a liar. He's a liar. The Spirit... His job is to give us the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. And to contradict that is to prove one's folly and, frankly, to establish one's position as a natural man and not a spiritual man. Flip back to 1 Thessalonians 5.21 real quick. Right after Colossians there. First Thessalonians 5, verse 21. But examine all things. There's that word again. Different, actually, different Greek word. But, but examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Before this, uh, you can see in your text there, Paul says to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing in verse 17, which means we ought, uh, we ought to give thanks in everything. Verse 18, it's the will of God. Uh, it's, the, it's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In verse 19, we uh, are instructed not to quench the Spirit, which means we ought not to stifle the work of the Spirit. Don't, don't hinder, don't damper, don't uh, repress the Spirit in you. Do not despise prophecies either, he says. You see what he's listing here. Do not uh, despise prophecies. Instead of doing all of that, he says, we are to... Examine. We are called to examine or prove all things. We are called to test all things in terms of Scripture. Everything. All manifestations of the Spirit in the lives of God's people, if they are genuine, will align with the Scripture. Paul's writing to young believers in Thessalonica. He gives a series of commands here at the end of the letter. And at the center is this private judgment, this exercise of private judgment. Examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good. In this case, like the Bereans in Acts 17, we must examine the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Isaiah 8.20 reads, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.15, later on, he says, I speak as to prudent people, you judge what I say. You judge what I say. 1 John 4.1 exhorts us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In the Old Testament, you might recall, Israel was instructed to test the prophets in Deuteronomy 13. Test the prophets. Uh, some will come and they will act you know, like they're speaking in my name. Jeremiah dealt with that as well. Uh, and, and we're supposed to test Meaning you as individuals should be testing these prophets to see whether what they're saying is true. If they're not lining up with Scripture, it's it's a problem. It's false. Ignore them. And all the prophets in Jeremiah's day, they just wanted to tell tell the king, hey, uh, everything's, everything's good. Jeremiah says everything's not good. It's very, very bad. 
and they locked him up for it. Calvin adds to the discussion, he says, although we all do not speak precisely according to set rule, we must nevertheless form a judgment before any doctrine is condemned or rejected. Do not embrace anything in your life if it's not tested by Scripture. And that is your responsibility. It is yours. According to Scripture, believers have a right and a duty to exercise private judgment. In this passage here, in our text, we find that private judgment is a right. And what is the right? Examine all things. You are commanded to examine all things. You have that right. Um, Measure everything by the measure of Scripture. It is the standard, the canon. It is the standard for truth. Measure all things by it. But here's the thing. You not only have a right, you have a responsibility. He says, hold fast to that which is good. Another command, you are responsible for that which is good. Because of the work of Christ and the the giving of the Holy Spirit, we have the right to examine, to judge, to discern, and prove everything, seeing to it that it aligns with Scripture. Imagine if we had churches who were examining every public policy, every law, every politician who wants to seek office. I can't run for office. I need the church. I need the Christians. They're the ones who have to examine me. Imagine if we were like that. But instead, we go to this rally the other night, and it's a rock star thing where everybody wants autographs and pictures. I love what Chesterton said. I I want a politician so close I can kick him. I don't want to wait in line for a photo opportunity. I want to demand righteousness. You know, but that's the world we live in. We need to hold fast to to that which is good, to examine all things. Think of it like this. On non-salvific matters, things that we might call secondary or even tertiary, we can, of course, agree to disagree. Um, We don't have to fight about everything. We can be patient with one another because there are things we just do differently. Our families do different family things and you have a different type of culture and you might uh, run things a different way, but we need to be, be able to be patient with one another, trying to receive one another with love and so forth. But when it comes to life and death matters, when it comes to, to core doctrines that either save or damn, our conscience must be held captive to the Word of God. Scripture is the control. And that's what Luther said when he was put on trial. My, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. You want me to recant? Recant? Are you kidding me? Recant from the authority of God's word? No way. No way. It's not just a right, this doctrine of private judgment. It's not just a right. It is a responsibility. Holding fast to that which is good requires a determined will. If you love your Savior and you love your soul, you will get a firm grip on this truth and you will never let it go. Never. No matter how things get, you will never ever let it go. We must find things approvable, those things that that God has given us, and we must be resolute in holding on to it. And in verse 22, Paul adds here, we are to abstain from every form of evil. Something may be at odds with Scripture, and therefore we, we hold to Scripture at all cost. That phrase, hold fast, interestingly enough, it's just one word in, in the Greek language, and it means to seize or possess retain the idea of holding down something. So if there is something good in this world, and it is something good that's established by Christ and His Word, and we've examined it, we see it, it is good, you seize that and you hold on to it. 
You hold on to it, no matter the cost. That's what we're told to do here. When you have the Spirit, you have the truth. And when you have the truth, you must be held captive to the same degree that it holds you captive. So be arrested by the truth. Be determined to retain that truth, no matter how difficult things get. And things may get more difficult. So how, do we, how, how might we apply this a little bit? I, we're called in Scripture to judge that which is right and good, that which is wrong and, and hurtful. We are to judge between light and darkness, between holy and profane, righteous and unrighteous, just and unjust, biblical, unbiblical, uh, beautiful, ugly, uh, scientific and unscientific. We are to judge between that which is lawful and unlawful, what is gospel, what is anti-gospel, what is love, what is hatred. That's a confused thing today. Uh, we're to judge uh, who Christ is, not in a condemnatory sense, of course, but we're to examine. We, we, we have Christ. We know Him. What is anti-Christ? We have to delineate between those two things. Biblical philosophy, imminence philosophy, uh, sound doctrine, false doctrine, what is self-control but what is unrestraint, uh, Wisdom, folly, plenitude, scarcity. There, there's all these things that we get to discern and judge. Uh, what is covenant keeping? What is covenant breaking? I mean, I could give you a million things. All of those things in Scripture we are called to, to judge between. And when we exercise private judgment, we want to be men of understanding. We need to be able to discern the times, the men of Issachar, right? We, need to, we want to be grounded. We don't want to be tossed about. We want to contend for the truth, not roll over when difficulties arise. We want to build Christendom, not, not build humanism's phony version of this ploy of secularism. Exercising private judgment is God's plan for maturation. It really is. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said about this. He said, if we love the open Bible, if we love the preaching of the gospel, if we love the freedom of, of reading that Bible, no man letting or hindering us and the opportunity of hearing the gospel, no man forbidding us, if we love civil liberty, if we love religious liberty, if these are precious to our souls, we must all make up our minds to hold fast, lest by and by we lose all. And I have this evening five, five final points just to close out the series. We've been talking about everything from taming the tongue to people-pleasing to... God's commands for us and, and what uh, responsibilities we have to one another. And there are the right and duty of private judgment matters for these five reasons. And exercising private judgment uh, requires you being in the Word. It requires you caring about doctrine. It requires you uh, seeking to learn, to grow. You're not really going to do much um, judgment in the world and uh, examination in the world if you just don't have the biblical worldview. The past two years told us everything we needed to know about the church's ability and or inability to rightfully examine the role of civil government. And my word, I felt like left, right, and center, some of us were trying to just get Romans 13 squared away for people because they, it's just do whatever they say, do whatever they say. That is not a, an examination and a judgment that is comporting with Scripture at all. 
So you need to be able to know this doctrine. You need to be able to exercise it. But I'm going to tell you five reasons why you should and what it does. The first one is exercising private judgment is a bulwark against ungodly tyranny in the church. Exercising private judgment is a bulwark against ungodly tyranny in the church. We'll deal with the world in a minute, but right now we're dealing with what the Reformation sought to do. It's a bulwark against ungodly tyranny in the church. We've already discussed the Reformation efforts that pointed out that the emperor, or the pope in this case, had no clothes. <laughs> Restoring the right and duty of private judgment removes the power focus from the collective and gives it back to the work of the Spirit in accordance to the Word of God. And I'm careful with that because much of cultural exposition these days is always who has power, who doesn't, and how do we take power back? And it's a, certainly the economic aspect of life, Marx's Marx absolutization of, of economics. But the, in this case, ungodly tyranny can look like Rome, no doubt. It can look like Rome and what the reformers did. But it can also look like elders and pastors who do not wish to be questioned about anything. <laughs> so, you know, that's the, the Reformation efforts. Great. Yeah, we can talk all day about that and the problem of the Roman church. But boy, do we have issues even in the Protestant church. <laughs> they don't wish to be questioned about anything. Don't you dare. They're legends in their own minds. To be unteachable in this regard is, of course, to shift infallibility from the Bible to the elder. That's a problem. In this case, he doesn't uh, open up to anyone because he doesn't want to be exposed. This, of course, puts narcissism on full display when you put a false self forward and nobody really knows what you're thinking. And um, He would rather micromanage, control, dictate what goes on, every little thing. Uh, Mormonism and other cults practice this sort of thing too. But private judgment is a safeguard against collectivism and centralizationism is... I think I might have made that up, but, but it's a safeguard against that. It's a safeguard against removing your right of conscience. And your right of conscience pertaining certain things could be head coverings. I mean, people fight over that. It could be all sorts of, of issues where there's disagreements and you try to be patient with one another. But we need to try to go back to the Scriptures. We need to try our best to keep the word central. And when we keep the word central, we keep tyranny at bay. And it keeps the light shining brightly on sin and unrighteousness. Evil men hate that. But the light should be shined accordingly. Second reason, exercising private judgment helps us to learn to contend for the faith. Helps us to learn to contend for the faith. Exercising private judgment helps us to learn to contend for the faith. Every Christian is called to contend for the faith. Everyone. And this requires prayer. It obviously requires things like biblical apologetics. It requires scripture mastery. And frankly, it requires you holding fast to that gospel message that you love so dearly. Everyone, not just elders, pastors, whatever, must work toward this goal. Every area of life is to be saturated with biblical thinking. Everything. Everything. Every science, field of science, everything must be saturated. Your families, um, how we view ourselves, how we view our relationship with our spouse, who we are, all of it's to be saturated with biblical thinking. 
every righteous vocation matters because every righteous vocation sits under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Huge hallmark of Reformation thinking, a recovering that there's not a two-tiered system of the priests up here and then just regular peons down here who go to their piddly jobs and do their thing. And none of that matters for the kingdom. None of that. The Reformation said, no, we're done with that thinking. Every vocation matters for the sake of building up a family, building up the church of God, building up uh, intergenerational dominion, building up what Christ has established in the world. So every vocation matters. Ryle said this again, every living soul can throw some weight into the scale of the gospel. Let him see to it that he casts it in. Let everyone know his individual... uh, Let everyone be known in his individual responsibility in this matter, and all, by God's help, will be well. That's the you taking individual responsibility, throwing weight around in the world with the gospel. That's what he's essentially getting to. Of course, examples ensue. No doctor should have total control over your physical health, just like no pastor or priest should have total control over your spiritual health. You have the responsibility to, pr- to prove all things. You have the responsibility to examine all things and to hold fast to gospel truth. You, Christian, are the one who will be accountable to the Lord. You are responsible for refusing to tolerate false doctrine wherever it may be found. Number three, exercising private judgment preserves doctrine through the ages preserves doctrine through the ages. Uh, Ryle again, he said, he that is not zealous against error is not likely to be zealous for truth. Um, and we don't want what Calvin warned against, uh, you, you know, the, the fool who's trying to handle doctrine is like giving a madman a sword. I'm paraphrasing, something like that. We, we want to be wise, mature. How do we contend for the faith in a way that's not contentious and... and you know, one-upmanship, preserve doctrine through the ages. In, in the previous one, we argued that exercising private judgment helps us contend for the faith, but here we're trying to preserve the faith from generation to generation. For example, teaching our children the importance of proving all things and holding fast to that which is good um, aids in seeing to it that the gospel takes root in a family and in the grandkids and in the great-grandkids and so on and so forth. Intergenerational dominion is something we like to talk about a lot around here, but the family, of course, is the central sphere for that great goal. If, if doctrine becomes the possession of some incohate nebulous collective, then how can pure doctrine really be preserved? It can't be checked. When can it be possibly be cor- corrected or questioned? In this case, it sets up for pollution, pollution of doctrine, and, of course, pollution of practice. But we expect, we know this, of course, we, we expect pushback when trying to preserve undiluted doctrine. And there's just a lot of bad doctrine out there. A lot of bad thinking. But truth, if, if it's to remain truth, must fight against the lie. That's the natural antithesis. But isn't it worth the struggle? What good things were ever really preserved without a battle? You, dear Christian, you must be armed with the knowledge of the word, and you must teach your children to teach it to their children. History is to be sanctified. Doctrine is to be preserved. Number four, exercising private judgments helps us stand against cultural degeneracy and decay. 
learning how to exercise private judgment, learning how to examine all things, holding fast to that which is true, helps us stand against cultural degeneracy and decay. If the world does not get sound doctrine from the people of God, insisting on it with unwavering resolve and commitment, well, what, what will it turn to? What's the natural disposition of the unnatural man, or the, the sinful man, the natural man? He turns to the lie. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They're dealing in lie land. Obviously, that's the position of unbelief. However, if we're contending for the faith and the hearts of man are transformed, it follows that the cultures of man are transformed as well. Sound doctrine from Scripture, we know what that does. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it equips men for every good work. The connection between doctrine and life is, is obvious in Paul's mind, though many Christians miss it. And when they miss it, they don't really have a social theory to offer up to the world. Well, how should things maybe look in the political arena? How should the family look? How should we think about education? Or how should we think about taxation? How should we think about all of these things in the world? Well, if we don't have an answer to offer up because we don't know the Word of God and we haven't been exer exercising private judgment, what are we going to tell the world? What are they going to do? Might makes right. Proletariat, bourgeoisie. <laughs> That's what happens. Degeneracy, decay. When Christians have nothing to offer the world, nothing to offer culture, you get America 2022. <laughs> Ethics, morality, political theory, all the sciences can only be ascertained and practiced correctly when founded on Scripture. And fifthly, Exercising private judgment enriches the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Going to the Word, meditating on the Word, memorizing the Word, diligently searching the Word, prayerfully searching the Word, being equipped to examine all things, to hold fast that which is good, enriches the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Christian, you must keep watch over your own soul. Children, listen, you as well. You must keep watch over yourself. Many adults have not done that. Don't make that mistake. You keep watch over your, over your soul. Proverbs 16, 17 reads, The highway of the upright is to turn away from evil. He who guards his way keeps his soul. If you want your soul, you got to keep it. You got to hold fast. That's diligence, blood, sweat, and tears. 1 Peter 5 8 says, Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Or how about Proverbs 4 23? Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Paul exhorts the same in 1 Corinthians 16 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. See, part of the Spirit's job is to lead you back to the very word that He inspired. Uh, Hebrews 2.1 says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Exercising private judgment is that watch guard. It's there to help you lest you drift away. Conviction of sin, education and righteousness, watchfulness of the soul, all of these the Spirit does in you in concert with the Scriptures. So lay hold of the Word of God. 
find yourself enriched by the Spirit when you yield to His loving guidance. And the gospel, listen, this is very basic here. The gospel which we proclaim is a gospel we must cling to. It is a good thing that we must hold fast to no matter the cost. I mean, Christ is glorious. His sin-crushing atonement, mind-boggling, but beautiful, horrendous and beautiful in the same look. Hold to that. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. Our standing with God is secured. Hold it tightly, dearly. Life together, if it's going to be an abundant blessing, will require a gospel-soaked, Christ-saturated, spirit-filled resolve to prove all things out of the Scripture. And don't ever apologize for it, ever. I can't tell you how many students the other day were saying, you can't you, set aside the Bible, set aside your religion, then let's talk ethics. And to the one, I said, I can't. I can't set aside my religious convictions any more than you can. What? I don't have any. Ha ha, you do. Let's talk about it. So don't ever apologize. Hold to the word of truth. His word is truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that your spirit has enlivened us to see the truth to open our eyes, to open our hearts to the, the, the fountain of righteousness and grace and peace and, and the glory that is your gospel. Thank you for that. I pray that you would strengthen us to exercise this gift, this responsibility, to not be dismayed by what we see in the world, but to examine it, to not be fearful at all about what we see in the world, but to contend for the faith. Strengthen us, Father, through the Spirit that you and the Son have, have given to us. May we lay hold of that word. May we be enriched. May we be watchful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.